Greetings, fellow pilgrims. Welcome to our seventh issue of Logo Sophia magazine. This issue is based on acts of charity evangelization. Within these pages, we have multiple stories of how various people evangelize, a few poems, a hymn by Charles Wesley, and much more. Please enjoy and let us know what you think. Happy summer! Sarah Levesque, Editor-in-Chief. A note on the audio magazine. Most of the articles within this magazine were read aloud by their respective authors. The remaining articles were read aloud by me or by one of my team. If you like the audio version of our magazine, check out the visual version to find games, book and movie suggestions, and much more. All rights for this issue as a whole are held by Logo Sophia magazine. Once published, no submissions may be removed from the issue, just like in any print magazine. All rights for the articles, stories, poems, etc. within this issue are retained by their respective authors, including reprinting rights. If you wish to reprint an article, story, poem, etc., please contact us at editors.logosophia at gmail.com. Thank you. Wanted. Readers and listeners of any faith to interact respectfully with writers and other readers and listeners through book and media suggestions and letters to the editor, as well as comments on logosophiamag.com and social media. Writers of Christian faith to augment the works of our staff. Advertisers and donors to support us financially. The Great Commission And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 A Prayer for Opportunity Jesus, my Savior, I long for the opportunity to proclaim the goodness of your name. As I go out today, please bring me into contact with those who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear. Direct my steps and lead me into the conversations you want me to have today, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. A prayer for fruitfulness. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as the seeds of the gospel are scattered and planted today, that they would land on good soil. Make them bear fruit, Father. Scare away the crows. Enrich the rocky soil. Strangle the weeds. Instead, give us rich, healthy soil ready to receive the seeds of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. These prayers and others found at connectusfund.org slash 23 powerful prayers for evangelism. Freedom is a fight in a bar in the North End by C.J. Williams. I really, really want to deck that guy. I looked at the man next to me. Seriously? He nodded. Well, we're free. And honesty is powerful, and it frees. But I was not sure the principle applied to a bar brawl in the dense space of a Friday night in Boston's North End. But it brought me to ponder as the slightly drunk fellow on the street leaned over my date, insisting he buy a martini instead of a cognac, how often do we act as if we aren't free? 
aren't free to buy a drink or start a fight. At the end of the day, or the week, how often do we sacrifice our liberty to others' opinions or our own fears? To others whose feelings we feel we must duck or soothe? Or what government or system do we resentfully accept and yet, in the end, we choose to change nothing? I mean, all of those refusals to choose are as good as having millions but never stocking your fridge. So here I was in the North End on a date. He's a sweethearted trickster and so am I, to be honest, with half a second more pause before I pitch myself into trouble, or opinions, and less of a desire to deck someone and set the world on fire. It comes of giving up the chip on my shoulder and not being chipped is rather nice, actually. Ten o'clock, Friday night, Boston flaneurs swirl by, and our tiny old world cafe bustles and roars, while servers selling martinis and coffees and teas and sweet liqueurs stagger and masked and unmasked couples at various stages of ignorance of each other lean either in or away. And my date, now that he'd gotten the decking people over with, for the third time in a three-week preliminary courtship, turned to me and said, how do you do it? With a switch to sudden earnestness. You're Catholic, but you're normal. And how do you believe when they, meaning the hierarchy, I guess, and other Catholics act like expletive? Well, I guess the first thing I wanted to say was people confuse neuroticism with holiness and sensitivity. To be fair, it's not a difference in appearance so much as heart. That is, neuroses and sanctity may both look different than the norm, but the heart of the latter is wholeness and peace, and the heart of the former is fear and disintegration. But all I said was, well, why not? That brought us to freedom, though, or it brought my pondering on again the next morning, after the rattle and racket of the late-night troublemaking and my date's rapid-fire repartee with the drunk, who did insist twenty times and counting that one could only buy martinis in a martini bar, while my date blithely repeated again and again, I'm getting a cognac. Alcohol aside, the reality and substance of freedom is this. To be free means to be able to decide to pursue and commit to truth, to reality, regardless of how anyone else practices it, pursues it, or misrepresents it. The whole world could tout marriage as a good goal, but break it, ignore it, or add any number of unnecessary bells and whistles to the practice of it, i.e. it must begin with a wedding party on a boat in the Atlantic under a stormy sky in October or be invalid, and that would not change marriage, nor would it bar me from getting validly married with the simple till death do us part vow. The powers that be could name the sky green or pink, or write it up in official documents. I would still be free to paint it pure and truly blue, baby robin's egg blue, and love its blueness. Everyone who loved to dance could begin to claim that dancers need three legs, or that dancing requires wearing red, but neither the third leg nor the red is an essential aspect of dancing, and I could still dedicate myself to the joy of kicking up my heels in purple and blue with my holy human two legs, and I would be dancing. So that night, I recalled turning back to my date and saying, why wouldn't I be normal and like my life? And when he still looked slightly stubborn and unconvinced, I told him, we all have the freedom to choose the thing that's true. That agency, the freedom for and to, is an inside job, though related to an exterior reality. The truths and the facts can be warped in people's perceptions, but not actually changed. They may be harder to find or follow because of the attitudes of others towards them, but they are no less themselves. Just as if you'd been punched in the face by that dude you were baiting, you'd be no less Rick than you were without a black eye. You might be harder to recognize, 
but I could still like you and choose you, even if I had to look at you through a bloody nose and black eye. So, he said, you're saying Catholicism is a cute guy with a bloody nose and a black eye. I shrugged. But in point of fact, yes. Many joys and truths, just like people, are pummeled and misused, or have rotten bells and whistles added that aren't anything but millstones and cinder blocks. But the glory and tension of being human is that I have a mind and reason, and I have the capacity to discern between how something is used and what it is in fact, between what's been painted on and what it is at its core. I always have the freedom and free will to say yes to what is. I don't worry about how you distort its surface, and I have just the same freedom to say no to what is not. As Aristotle says, to say of what is that it is, and to say of what is not that it is not, that is truth. Why do we forget that we're free? Perhaps especially as young people in a spiraling, breakneck world, perhaps especially as women, or perhaps simply as human beings, our heart, under pressure, forgets. We forget who we are. We are free. We are free to choose the good, even if it's been punched in the face. And that's an Irish way of making a point, if ever there was one, telling a story, but an Italian way of working one, fists and shouting in bars. My date didn't throw the punch. I didn't shy away from saying who I was and what I believed. So we both got to be free. Whatever happens down the road happens. But honesty is powerful, and it does free. Fishers of Men by Amanda Pizzolatto One Sunday, the priest talked about a trip to Galilee. He and a few other priests went to the Sea of Galilee and found an interesting tourist site. Apparently, an ancient fishing boat had been found preserved at the bottom of the sea, and a copy was made. So, several times a day, people could be taken out on the boat and see how they worked back in the days of Jesus. The priest got to talking to one guy who had been on the boat multiple times. He told him that of the hundred times he had seen them lower the net, they only ever caught one fish. The priest ties it into the gospel, especially Matthew chapter 4 verse 19, in which Jesus tells Peter and the others, I will make you fishers of men. Fishing in general is hard, even with just a line instead of a net. So fishing for men? If we know anything about our fallen human nature, we should know that that will be particularly hard. But then the priest mentioned that the fishers caught the huge load when Jesus tells them to lower their nets yet again. So his lesson wasn't that if we keep trying, we will succeed. It was that they caught as many as they did only when Jesus came into the picture. We shouldn't stop trying to be sure, but we can't say it's mostly our efforts when we do catch a large load. Though it is easy to think so, especially after so many tries are met with disappointing results, then there are two other things. The devil is also fishing, and it's possible God wants us to use a certain net or bait. It can be said there are several types of nets or bait besides the Bible, including music, story, art, tech, or even science. God gives us each talents and passions to be used in His honor and for His glory, as well as a net to bring others into the fold, if done right. 
Many people have to hone their skills for years before becoming really good, and even then they can still grow. And just like there is more than one way to teach, there is more than one way to spark a relationship between God and a soul. He knows how to speak every language. We just must be willing to listen. But once we listen, we can turn around and help God in getting others to listen, or to fish for them. Sometimes we are indeed using the wrong net or bait and must change them in order to be not only following God's will for our lives, but also to be able to get that large catch that he will bring in when it's time. The point of us continuing to throw out that net is to show our trust in the Lord and to provide an example to others. When most people think of evangelism, most do think of the people going door to door, asking if you've heard of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But some evangelize through their kindness or their acts of charity. In one particular instance, King Alphonsus of Leon and Galicia carried a rosary everywhere with him to spread honor to the Blessed Virgin Mary and to remind people to pray. It worked, and it even gave King Alphonsus more time to become a better man and to bring in more people. This then must be what is meant by there are many ways to God. For while God will use whatever means at his disposal, which is technically all of them, to call us to him and to help enrich a relationship with him, there is but one actual path to him, and that is through Jesus Christ and his bride at the church. So go, take your nets, and practice until you get that big catch. For becoming a child of God turns us into fishers of men, and fishing isn't easy. Christians at Comic-Con by T.K. Wilson, read by Sarah Levesque. The boxes are packed, the cosplays are ironed, the makeup is on. What day is it? It's Comic-Con Day. At my house, we look forward to our Comic-Cons every year, the day we go out to strut our stuff, to be out in the community doing what we love. But as Christians, what does it take to be a Christian in the geek community? It's harder than you think. There are some in Christendom who have alienated the geek community because they choose to judge them or shut them out because of their interests. Some geeks, too, make it hard to be a Christian because of their strange fetishes and whatnot, not to mention the hostility some have to Christianity. But it's possible to be a light there, and it's not a scary thing to do. We attend at least two cons every year, one in our hometown, the other in a town an hour away. We plan to extend our reach to other areas once cons are allowed to return after COVID. Every year, I bring my toys for sale, and my brother brings his art. Because our hometown con organizer likes my brother, we get a free table where I spread out my pastel goodies and Ian sets out his art and prints. There are rarely Christians there openly. One year, the Wesleyan Church showed up with a display about their superhero-themed VBS, but that's all. I don't think they even stayed the whole day. Other than that, there is no open Christianity. At least nobody's picketing and shouting. My brother and I do, however, try to network with those we can, and have a few Catholic allies on the ground at the con. The important thing is to radiate joy. Joy, as our pastor has reminded us lately, is the key to evangelism. We are meant to be the salt and light in this world, and part of that light should be our joy. 
We're smiling. We're happy, excited to be here. We're chatting. We're laughing. We're watching all the people as they set up their wares. I believe there is a light around us that cannot be seen, because the people who come to our table always smile, even if they don't buy anything. And we always sell more than all the tables around us. I once chalked it up to the fact that there aren't that many people who do what we do, but now I think it's more than that. I believe that evangelism is about building relationships. I've never been one of those stand-on-the-street-corners-and-preach kind of people, nor the tract-handing-out sort, or gospel-themed t-shirt-wearing kind, because I like to get to know people beforehand. I like talking to them about their likes and dislikes. Only then can I feel comfortable sharing the gospel with them. One thing's for sure, you don't just spring the gospel on geeks. They usually don't react well. My problem is evangelism isn't my strong suit. Not only is it not among my spiritual gifts, but many of the usual methods leave a bad taste in my mouth. I can't just walk up to people, not in my wheelhouse. But I can be kind to them, and maybe kindness will be enough. This is Samantha Terrell, and this is my poem, Sharing the Chalice. Sharing the Chalice Who can judge, and how, the lessons of the heart, the knowledge become wisdom that dares to set apart one from another in what they say and do, uttered well and with grace by both. The difference, then, the place from which the message comes. An empty chalice, a closed tomb, or an open book, a swollen womb, to teach first think, then share, the chalice filled with never-ending drink. The Importance of Parental Evangelization by Sarah Levesque The greatest gift Christian parents can give to their children is to pass on their faith. I suspect this is true of any religion. But today, more and more people are choosing to say something along the lines of, Oh, I don't take my children to church. I want them to be free to choose their own beliefs. To be fair, I'm not sure where I heard this phrase, but fewer and fewer kids seem to be growing up in a religious home. Children learn their first lessons from a parent, particularly lessons about morality, kindness, and truth. Small children tend to mimic their parents, hitting computer buttons, borrowing keys or shoes, making faces, and so much more. If children see their parents praying, helping others, reverently attending services, they will be more likely to grow up doing these things. It is much easier for a loving parent to lead a small child to trust in Jesus than it is for anyone to lead a teenager. As children get older, it's harder for them to change how they look at the world. If they learn to look at the world with relativism, skepticism, and distrust through the eyes of the world— it will be much harder to lead them to Christ, unless they are truly seeking. Let's pause here a moment to look back on that idea mentioned earlier, oh, I don't take my children to church, I want them to be free to choose their own beliefs. What if we use that logic on other topics as a test? I don't teach my children to talk, I want them to be free to choose their own language. Or perhaps, I don't let my children take science, I want them to be free to choose their own beliefs. For a third example, 
I don't listen to music with my kids. I want them to be free to choose their own music. For a last example, I don't show my kids art. I want them to be free to choose their own style. Let's work backwards and start with that last example. I don't show my kids art. I want them to be free to choose their own style. And yet, how can one choose a style when he hasn't learned any? How could one decide to pull from Monet and Picasso if he has never heard of either, much less studied them? In order to choose whether it is a full style or just one technique, a person must know what the styles and or techniques are. This is also true of religion, which includes art in its liturgy, architecture, and more. The same thing can be said about the example, I don't listen to music with my kids. I want them to be free to choose their own music. Just like the last example, if children don't experience music, they will grow up unable to appreciate the differences and nuances of different styles, instruments, and composers. Being unable to appreciate those, they will likely be easily delighted or baffled by what they hear. They may well be able to learn, but not as easily had they learned when they were children. And neglecting to expose people to beauty is just a shame. Now let's look at our second example. I don't let my children take science. I want them to be free to choose their own beliefs. I do hope that when you heard that phrase, you reacted negatively to it. It would be just as silly to ignore science as it would be to ignore art or music. At least art and music have a subjective side to them. Science is objective. It would be illogical and unhelpful to ignore a child's questions about how the world works, but that would be necessary if one were to completely stick to the idea of not allowing children to learn science despite the facts that science is objective, observable, and all around us. But science is not the only objective truth. If someone decides to be like Lee Strobel and dig for the truth about Christianity, they will find that Jesus of Nazareth was a well-documented historical person who did things that no ordinary human could do and attributed these things to being the Son of God. All the facts back this up. Check out Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Christ, or watch the movie by the same name. Christianity is full of truth, and withholding truth from someone is wrong. Finally, let's look at our first example. I don't teach my children to talk. I want them to be free to choose their own language. Experience tells us that art and music are difficult to learn without some childhood experience. But language is nearly impossible to learn without childhood experience. There have been documented cases of children whose language exposure was so limited to the point where they were unable to communicate well as adults. Religion is how we communicate with God, how we know what he wants of us and how to follow him, and how we ask him for help. People who do not learn the importance and truth of religion as children have a tendency to grow up to be adults who have difficulty communicating with God, if they even recognize the need. Most don't know what they're missing. And yet, without religion to ground us, to clarify things and root us in the truth, we are easily blown around by the whims of the world and our own desires, even if they are misguided. In short, when withheld from the true, as exemplified by science, the good, as exemplified by all examples, and the beautiful, as exemplified by art and music, a child's mental growth is stunted, and it is only with difficulty that the child can gain that understanding.
Religion is also true, good, and beautiful, all in one. Depriving a child of religion is unhelpful, even harmful, even when doing it with the best of intentions. When a parent neglects to teach a child about religion, the true, the good, and the beautiful, the child will learn about the world through the eyes of the world, a world in which tangible things and careers are more important than people. To be vulnerable is to be ridiculed, to love is to be used. Where, quote, everything is, where, where, quote, everything might be permitted, but practically nothing is forgiven, end quote, to quote Cardinal Francis George, the late Archbishop of Chicago. The best thing that can be done to counteract these problems of the world is for parents to teach their children the truth about God and what he wants of us and how much they are loved. And the best way to do that is by example, following the truth, pursuing a life conforming to the denomination of Christianity that holds the most truth, and by example, to lead the child to a life of communion with Christ in his church. Every good parent wants what's best for his or her child. For some, allowing the child to choose his own religion seems to be best. But that idea overlooks what religion teaches people. Lessons that are easier learned in childhood than adulthood. Lessons of truth, morality, and reasoning. Lessons about God, mankind, and the world. These are the fundamental things we all need, and it is much easier to build a foundation early on than it is to add a foundation later. But Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. Matthew nineteen fourteen. Train children in the right way, and when old, they will not stray. Proverbs 22, 6. A Loathed Leader by J.C. Ellis Read by Sarah Levesque A loathed leader walks lonely Through crass crowds and hateful heights The hero hailed, now hated, Stumbles to the scorned skull his life lost for their great pain, his slayers' lives he now saves. Their murder he does invert, and death fell he does revert. To the Wolves by Stephen Kuhn To the wolves, yes, wolves, my lamb, I send you, you must go. Tell them of the great I am. Speak of the love you know. To the wolves, the wolves, my lord. My flesh they will consume. As soon as I speak your word, I'm sure to meet my doom. To the wolves, the wolves, you say. I can't, how could I dare? Shall I throw my life away? Dear lord, do you not care? To the wolves, my precious one, your life is yours no more. But trust in me, in what I've done, and what I have in store. To the wolves I sent my lamb, to buy back wolves like you. Who slaughtered the son of man, but now a son stand true. To the wolves, the wolves, my lord, I hear you and I go, to share with them your holy word, with life 
Your love I'll show. Controversy Corner. Controversy Corner is a section of Logo Sophia magazine where people of different faith traditions discuss controversial topics in a succinct manner. If you would like to submit a topic for discussion, please let us know. Don't see your denomination represented? Help us fix that. We're always looking for new writers. Disagree with a representative of your denomination? Write in and tell us why in a respectful manner, and we'll publish it in our next magazine under Letters to the Editor. For these and any other questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at editors.logosophia at gmail.com. Controversy Corner. What does your denomination think of infant baptism, and is it wrong to rebaptize church members from other denominations? Confessional Lutheran, represented by J.C. Ellis, read by Ian Wilson. We believe in baptizing infants so that they may have their sins washed away and become regenerate. We believe that in holy baptism, the recipient receives all the benefits Christ won at the cross and his resurrection. Though we only baptize the infants of believing parents, lest the faith that was planted in them not be watered and grow through catechesis. All Trinitarian baptisms are valid, and it would be erroneous to rebaptize someone who received a Trinitarian baptism. Presbyterian Church in America, represented by Joshua David Ling. The Presbyterian Church in America baptizes infants of believing households. We place a heavy emphasis upon covenantalism, and we believe that the promises made to a believing parent extend to their children, and all within the jurisdiction of the patriarch or matriarch of the family. They are also entered into the Abrahamic covenant. Those who reject this blessing are considered backslidden or apostate. We acknowledge all Trinitarian baptisms as legitimate and do not practice rebaptism. Roman Catholic, represented by Sarah Levesque. We Catholics tend to baptize our children as infants, so they will be washed clean of original sin and be able to receive God's grace early in their lives. Later on, after they have reached the age of reason, the children make their own confession of faith at their confirmation, the sacrament wherein they are sealed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The age of confirmation varies in different areas, ranging from about eight, when most children receive their first communion, to teenage years. As long as a Christian has been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the Catholic Church recognizes his or her baptism, while our Eastern Orthodox Catholic brothers and sisters also insist on a full immersion for validity. Author interview with Ian Wilson. Hello, tell us a little about yourself. My name is Ian Wilson. I'm a Christian author from a town in northern New York I guarantee you've never heard of. I enjoy hiking, gardening, drawing, and folk music. What is your latest book about? 
my latest book is called The Sword of Emrys, and it's a fantasy book, as you can tell from the title, about King Arthur's uncle, King Emrys, and narrated by the chief bard Taliesin. It's partly based on legend, partly on history. Taliesin is romantically involved with a young girl named Creerwe, but at King Emrys' wedding feast, Creerwe vanishes without a trace. Taliesin must go on a quest to rescue her, fighting false gods and monsters. Emrys, meanwhile, must solve the mystery of the mysterious earthquakes, plaguing the kingdom, and fight a battle with some dwarves. It's a rollicking good tale of good and evil with magic swords, battles, monsters, etc. When did you start writing, and why? I don't know how to answer that. I started writing comics years ago, and I did it simply because I liked doing it. You might as well ask a dog why he chases his tail. How did you come up with the idea for this book specifically? It just sort of hit me one day that it would be a good idea to do a damsel in distress type of story. How was this book different than any of your others? It was a lot more detailed. I went into a lot more depth into the history and functioning of this world than I had in the previous volume. How did you go about publishing your book? Would you do it that way again? Why or why not? I went through Amazon Kindle as I had for the previous book. It was just so easy, of course, I would do it again. What are you working on now? I'm working on a prequel to A Song of Emrys about Emrys' youth, and that will be out this fall. I'm also working on a short story series that I'm publishing here in Logo Sophia a little at a time. Can you tell us about your other books? A Song of Emrys is about the battle between the old gods of Britain and the people of Camelot. A lot of the story focuses on Taliesin and how he met Creerwe and their quest to help save the kingdom from the evil gods. I'm also writing a series of graphic novels called Legend of the Swordbearer. It takes place during modern times and focuses on what happened to the sword Excalibur after the fall of Camelot. Why do you write? I suppose partly because I love to tell stories that people actually like. It's sort of a compulsion, if you will. What helps you to write? I like to listen to instrumental music while I write. I listen to a lot of genres, American folk music, Irish folk music, cinematic, metal, rock, and others. What has writing taught you? How to put my thoughts down logically, perseverance, patience. Who are you inspired by in your writing? I take a lot of inspiration from the old pulp writers of the early 20th century. Robert E. Howard and Edgar Rice Burroughs, specifically. What is your advice for writers? Write the darn draft. Just finish something. Doesn't have to be perfect. You can go back and edit later. Just finish it. Like what you hear? Find Ian's books, his social media information, and more on his website, legendsandsongs.weebly.com.
Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, written by Charles Wesley, performed by Amy N., Sarah Levesque, and Jordan Quigley. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. Oh, glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Only where the hands are not too good for deeds of love and mercy in everyday helpfulness can the mouth joyfully and convincingly proclaim the message of God's love and mercy. Where the ministry of listening, active helpfulness, and hearing with others is faithfully performed, the ultimate and highest service can be rendered, namely, the ministry of the Word of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Life Together, Chapter 4, Ministry. Always Be Ready by Sarah Levesque Opportunities for evangelizing come when you least expect them. At the grocery store, the bank, the gas station, with family, friends, co-workers, and strangers. Or sometimes God gives you a more official opportunity. I've been working on Christian magazines since 2014, and as I've gotten older and stronger in my faith, I've written more about it. Since LSM began, I've written more about my faith than ever before. But God has given me another opportunity to evangelize. Through a series of events that can only be called God-driven, I landed a job teaching theology to high school students. For my first challenge, I had five weeks to cover 2,000 years of church history. It was an interesting introduction to the world of teaching teenagers. This past school year, I also got to teach apologetics, faith, science, and reason, and Catholic social teaching. I made sure all my students got two weeks about Jesus around Easter, and I encouraged them to ask questions throughout the year. Some of them had excellent questions on topics ranging from forgiveness to marriage to politics to sin. Sometimes I got discouraged at their reactions, but my mom reminded me that I was planting seeds. I probably won't get to see any of these seeds grow to fruition, but I can pray that they will. 
Of course, not everyone gets an opportunity like this. Most people are probably closer to where I was last year, evangelizing by answering questions from coworkers and the kids I babysat, giving my nephews faith-based picture books, connecting with other Christians by wearing clothes and accessories that indicated my faith, helping with my church, and volunteering through various organizations. And if that's where God puts you, then that's where he wants you. Some people are called to evangelize in places they've never been, while others are called to evangelize at home in their everyday lives. Don't hide your light, invite questions about your faith and lifestyle, and hope in the Lord. As 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 says, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. We hope you've enjoyed the summer 2021 issue of Logo Sophia magazine, Acts of Charity Evangelization. If you did, consider subscribing, commenting, donating, or writing for our next issue. Tune in for our autumn 2021 issue, Acts of Charity, Justice and Mercy. The submissions deadline is October 4th.